and welcome to another edition. It's Faster Masters Rowing Radio for October. I'm Rebecca Caro, and with me today is Marlene Royal. Hey, Marlene. Hi, Rebecca, and hello, Faster Masters. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's it's one of those times of year where you really feel the change of the season. For me, my skin gets all dry, and I was just saying we'd had a lovely weekend, and today it is pouring with rain. Well, we have rain too, but up here in the eastern townships of Montreal, we also had incredible weather this weekend with no wind and warm, and the foliage is starting to, to peak. Um, down in Boston at the head of the Charles, uh, four hours south of here, they'll be they'll be peaking that weekend. But we already have the reds and the oranges, and it's just classical. So I love it too. To start focusing on long distance head racing. So long distance racing by tradition is something in the order of up to five, sometimes eight kilometers long. It's an endurance race and head races, as many of you know, are usually timed. So you race line astern. So you, you basically line up and then one after the other, you go down the race course. And head racing has its own unique fun and its own unique challenges. Marlene, what's, what's the best bit about head racing for you? I th I what I always liked about head racing is I like the steering challenges. I like the steering challenges and um you know you have to decide when you get on the course that it's just your course, you own the course. You know that if we're coming through, get out of our way. This is our course. So, you know, you have to be polite in terms of the rules of racing, but at the same time, you know, you have to demand your space and if you're coming through you you have to to take your water and not be afraid to get pushed around out there right so um i always like the challenge of of steering the course and whenever i rode the head of the charles in a straight boat if i was in a a double you know i always loved to bow because mm -hmm. i knew the river really well and i loved the challenge of you know running the buoys right underneath your rigger and um and I, I think for athletes and working with the athletes who are getting ready for head racing, um, building their confidence in their fitness, um, you know, you've been training all year for this. You have to be confident in your, be confident in your fitness. Um, you have to know that your training is going to get you through and you have to row this race aggressively from the start. You know, none of this sort of, well, I'm going to just kind of start easy and maybe I'll see how it goes. You know, you, you can't be afraid to push the envelope at the early stages of the race once you get into your rhythm. I think it's, it's very important to be um, focusing your first couple of minutes on getting into your rhythm and just getting the boat moving and then, um, you know, kind of powering it up and... Uh, just trusting your fitness to hold you through. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally support that. I have one tiny caveat, which is if you're racing in a crew boat, particularly an eight, um, the job of work of making that rhythm must fall to stern pair. And it's really worthwhile practicing a little threesome between the coxswain and stern pair because the three of you can talk to each other reasonably easily without yelling and practicing 
what you are going to do to make the rhythm. It's beneficial for stern pair not to be rowing at 100% at the beginning of the race. It is more important to make the rhythm. So bow six, you're, you're doing the hard work. Stern pair, maybe you're backed off to maybe 95%. Not, not a lot, just a little bit less. And make really sure that you're setting up the rhythm and the ratio that you want. And as soon as it's the way you want it, you can then join in racing at 100%. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, a good stroke and a good stern pair has to feel the boat out. You know, you have to you have to work with the boat as much as the boat has to work with you. You know, it can't be a top it can't be a top down discussion. You know, a good stroke is going to find okay, the, maybe the crew feels a little bit jittery. Maybe I have to settle them down a little bit. Maybe we have to lengthen them a little bit. You know, a, a good stroke is going to be able to um, converse with the coxswain and be able to modify to try to glue the crew together, you know, and, that, and that's the job of a, a good stroke has to be extremely versatile and, you know, get the crew to that point that, yes, we can lengthen. Now we can increase the power. Now we can, you know, to bring the focus in, into the boat. So, And a good seven has a slightly different job. So the seven's job is to observe what the stroke is doing and to feel what's happening behind them in the rest of the crew and to give feedback to the stroke as to whether what they're setting up is what they intend. Because if you know each other well and you've practiced together, you'll know what they're working on, what the stroke is working on. It's either something that Coxon's called or it's a regular thing that you know you're always trying to do at this stage in the race. And the seven will tell you whether you're on it or not. And that's a very important job because there's less pressure to instantly perform for the entire crew at seven. So you have that mental separation where you can be a little bit objective, as mm -hmm. it were, standing away from the action and having a, a reasoned look at, are we doing what we intended? Is it working? Yes. I mean, your seven is your connection. You know, you're, you're the connector between the stroke and the rest of the boat. And, you know, if, of course, a coach's selection of who your seven seat is together with the stern pair is, is really critical because if they're not together, the whole boat will be, whole boat would be, be segmented. So um, you don't necessarily have to be best friends, but you do have to work together in the office, so to speak, <laughs> and get the result. But, um, but yes, ab absolutely. You know, that support can trickle all the way down the boat, you know, so you have to have that connector there and, um, and hopefully develop, if you've got a really good stern pair, develop that intuition that, you know, the stroke just thinks it and the seven seat knows how to communicate it. That's that's the ideal. I used to have a coxswain like that. She was called Lisa. I was at stroke and I just used to lift an eyebrow and she would say what I wanted her to say. She was amazing. Let's go. <laughs> so getting into your rhythm, you said earlier, Marlene, when we start the um, piece, it's really important to be aggressive from the start and then to focus on your own rhythm. So let's talk through some drills now that could be useful to help people getting into that rhythm. What's your favorite rhythm drill? Let's actually back off. I'm going to kick off. 
rhythm is created by the contrast between the power phase and the recovery phase. So in the rowing stroke cycle, having a one-to-one -one rhythm means that uh, the amount of time in the water is equal to the amount of time out of the water. This is not what you want, certainly not for head racing. You might achieve this perhaps in the first few strokes off the start and maybe in a sprint finish in any sort of race. But in order to sustain your crew through a long race, you need to have more time on the recovery than in the water. So for me, the rhythm starts from the moment you are on the recovery where you have the weight back on your feet. And by that, I mean, you've taken the oar out of the water, you've probably feathered, your hands have gone away and your body has rocked over. And momentarily after the body rock and you just begin to soften your knees preparing to go up the slide sometime around there which may be about quarter slide for some people to this point of having what we call weight on your feet so your body mass has moved out of bow and is now moving toward the stern from that moment until you put the oar in the water for the next stroke is the big place where rhythm happens well, I like the image. I like the image of keeping keeping the boat moving as a cycle. So, so when I'm coaching crews or or coaching scholars, I like to have them for rhythm has a, have a reference. If it's a scholar, crossover to crossover, or if it's a sweep boat, perpendicular to perpendicular. So the perpendicular meaning um, you've made the release arms and body away, the oar handle is moving through the perpendicular point um, before the knees soften and, and start to come up. And I think that's a really good reference for scholars and for a crew because that keeps you moving through the transitions, the transition of the release, the transition of the entry. And I, I defined each stroke cycle by the completion of the follow through to when the knees start to rise. So um, matching, getting everybody thinking that, yes, we have to get back out to the crossover together. We have to get back out to the perpendicular, to the arms and body away together. So the knees rise at the same time, I think is really effective for getting everybody into the same rhythm so they don't get hung up at the transition points. They don't get hung up at the release. They don't get hung up uh, before they put the blade in the water, but they just move through those points. And a good way to practice that is to practice having soft knees on the recovery. So I used to teach kids, as you know, and one of the joys of teaching children is you have to simplify your language. And I called this drill jelly legs. <laughs> what you had to do was we would sit stationary to begin with, and I would have everybody just hit the back of their thighs and the back of their calves to feel what the muscle feels like when it's fully relaxed and it's soft and it's like jelly, like the muscle is dripping down off your bone. It's not doing anything, it's perfectly relaxed. And you feel this best at around half slide. And then the drill is this, that you row off, go into a, at least a three quarter pressure piece and then get the crew or the cox, if you're coxed, to practice for 10 strokes from that weight on the feet moment, which for the sake of argument, let's call it quarter slide, 
from weight on the feet right the way through to placing the blade at the next catch to exaggerate the looseness of the legs, the jelly legs feeling. Don't worry about rating, just keep the power up. And then what you're working on is the contrast between tension during the power phase and relaxation during the recovery. Do it for 10 strokes, then go back to rowing normally. Do it at least three times and see what happens to the feel and the run of the boat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's absolutely important, in my opinion, not to pull up on the slide because, again, you're going to get a lot of muscle tension. That's going to tend to pull the upper body down. So if you're keeping the legs legs relaxed, that's the one point in the stroke cycle where you actually rest the legs slightly. And to give you your stability, you can you can keep your weight into the pin. This is where your upper body and your core come into place that you can keep your lats firm and you can keep weight against the pin and essentially work around the pin and you know push the boat as it goes by you. Follow the boat as it goes by you, but let the legs stay very relaxed so the boat can run without tension. That is great advice. And of course, a little bit of understanding, you still need to use your hamstrings to go up the slide. You can't just glide, um, particularly not at race rates, but it's well worthwhile practicing that drill at different ratings. Now, in the Faster Masters rowing program for October, we have other drills rhythm so if you're keen on learning drills for rhythm there's a fantastic video featuring myself obviously on the erg teaching you how to teach each other drills for rhythm so it's often the way with masters rowing that you're training on your own and you're training in a small group and you don't have a regular coach and so it's for our point of view part of what we are to a degree now, the best way to learn rowing is to have someone who knows how to do it show it to you. If you don't have that option, these are some good alternatives and will definitely help you and your crew learn how to acquire rhythm in your rowing stroke. That's the end of the commercial. Now, let's move on to pacing, pace judgment. You've got to last the distance. We've already established that your head race it could be anything from 15 through to 25 minutes long, some are longer, some are shorter. Marlene, what's your best advice on how to learn pace judgment? I think the most straightforward way, if you know that you're going to race a 5K race, obviously in practice you want to aim to do some time trials and target a stroke rate, uh, maybe it's 26, maybe it's 28, maybe it's 33, depending on what boat class you're in. But um, time trials are, are important to give yourself a dry run and say, okay, well, my, my goal is to hold 28. Can I hold 28 pretty consistently? Because this is a time trial and you're going to, to have the best result if you can row your own race and you can keep a pretty consistent speed. Here, you're going to use the, the most even paced energy if you can maintain a consistent speed. But in practice, it's not always fun to do time trials every single week. You can get burned out that way. So, one workout that is a very good workout is seven times three minutes with a two minute break. And 
pick your stroke, your target stroke rating. So if you're in a single and you said, you know what, I want to row my race at 28. If you can complete that workout seven times three minutes with two minutes rest, and you can hold 28 every single three minutes, you're gonna you can be pretty sure that you're going to be able to do that on race day. If you couldn't hold it, then it's a little bit too high. Take it down, maybe take it down to 27, try it again. And it's one workout that you can work with. And I think it's important to define for people that you're always rowing the same pressure. It's just a matter of how many strokes you're taking. So if you're rowing 26, you're still rowing the same pressure as when you're rowing 28, if you're effective. So it's not easier or lighter. It's being able to repeat those full pressure strokes a little bit more frequently and still be able to move the boat efficiently. And, you know, if you, if you're moving your boat better at 26 than you are at 28, there's absolutely no sense to row 28 right now. If you're moving more meters per second at 26, you want to try to bump that up. And, um, that's one, uh, technical way to work on your pacing besides time trials. And from a technical point of view, if you're finding that up, oh, your ratings are a little bit low and you can't boost them up, pay a lot of attention to your release timing. If your release timing is a little bit late, that can knock you down two stroke rates per minute. So feeling, I'm going to say short, which means that you might be releasing on time. Um, if you're releasing a fraction earlier than you think you are, you're probably going to notice that you're carrying a little bit more boat speed and your rating's going to come up one or two beats more easily. So try to avoid this exaggerated length into the bow um, because that that's that's dropping your stroke rate right there. You know, make that transition back out to the crossover, like we were talking about rhythm. Get it the release is a point to move through, get back out into the recovery, get the hands out, get the body swinging out of bow. That's where you're going to carry your stroke rating and um, keep your pace even. One thing I would say when you're doing those trials of the seven three minute pieces, be prepared to fail because being too conservative is not going to help you. When you're actually at a regatta at a race, you will in all likelihood, gain maybe one point in rating just through adrenaline and the excitement of the race. So it's quite important to know your upper limit. So program that workout in a couple of times and get get to know your capabilities. On pace or not, in my view, it's probably better to go too high and fail than it is to go too low and regret that you couldn't have gone harder when you've crossed the finish line. Right. Well, yeah, you'll learn that balance. And I mean, and that's what practice is for. I mean, that's why we train, you know, I mean, go out there and, and try this in practice so that you have a, you have more knowledge going into, into your race. And, and given the fact that you may have to adjust for wind um, different conditions. But if you know that, you know what, I could row that like 27, I was barely hanging on, but I could row 27 for those pieces. If you were in, I'm 
talking about somebody who's in a single, um, you know, that's also going to give you confidence in your fitness and confidence in your training. And that's what you need on race day. You know, you have to know that your legs are going to get you through. If you've, if you've done the work, they should, right? If you've done the faster master's program, they will get you through. We, we promise, you know? Um, yeah, and I should mention at this time that we have a wonderful athlete called Casey McKenna who is preparing in her single for the head of the charts. She just told us that she got her entry accepted and she's writing a blog which we're putting on our website every week. She's just got into week two and you can go and see how she's doing. Now, head racing, because it is such a big topic and it's a topic very close to both our hearts, we've pulled together an ebook which is free for you to download uh, off our website. It's at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash head hyphen racing. And on that page, you can sign up to receive a link to download it. It has six articles in it, which has a lot of different information, including one for coxswains, so how to cox a head race without sounding repetitive. And it has a lot of other good stuff in there. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. That sign up adds you to our mailing list. You can, of course, unsubscribe if you're not getting value. The mailing list will give you links to this podcast each month um, and ad hoc special offers that we'll have coming through. So we hope to see many more of you joining the mailing list and downloading and reading the head racing, the ultimate guide to head racing for masters. Now, we've got one other fun thing this month to talk about, and that is a seat pad, which is extremely useful for helping you to get into the correct position in a rowing boat. Marlene, can you run through what the challenges are that a lot of us older athletes suffer when we're trying to scull and row? Well, I think if we look at, first of all, if we look at mobility and flexibility, um, being able to be set up in the boat comfortably so that you can get as much compression as is effective for you. And, and, um, Again, for those people who join Faster Masters, in our welcome gift, we, we do have the presentation, which is called Technique As You Age. And, and the whole point of Technique As You Age is to obey the correct sequences regardless of your mobility. And, and I think it's really important not to compromise a safe position of your spine and your hips and your joints um, to, to compensate for lack of flexibility or mobility. So the, um, the way that you're set up in your boat and the seat pad can be really critical to helping raise your hips up a little bit relative to your heels, which can help you compress more if you don't have a lot of mobility in your ankles or in your hips, that can be a, really, a, a real plus. The other thing is there, there can be issues, and I tend to see this more with masters men than masters women, is that the position of the pelvis tends to be tilted back. So it's a posterior tilt, which means you're sitting back on your tailbone a little bit too far back on the seat, and that makes it very difficult to be able to pivot out of bow, hinging at the hip. In order to 
reposition your pelvis into a more neutral position, this seat pad can help you get up over your sit bones better so that you're off your pockets, so to speak, so that you're able to hinge better through the hip, which is going to take a lot of stress off of, off of your spine as you're trying to get body angle. I would much rather see somebody with less body angle, but achieving it from pivoting at their hip than trying to overextend through stretching their spine and overstretching um, through the shoulders. So the seat pad can be really instrumental in adjusting your height of your hips relative to your heels and repositioning how you're sitting on your sit bones so that you can pivot properly. If you own your own single skull and you know this is something that's a challenge for you, you can also achieve the same thing by putting tiny little wooden wedges underneath the seat or little penny washers, a little stack of penny washers underneath just the back wheels because your seat is an undercarriage and then usually either a wooden or a carbon seat top and you can just jack it, jack it up very slightly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that way. Exactly. Now the seat pad that we've chosen um, is made by a bunch of guys out of Denmark. They were part of the Danish national lightweight rowing team, very successful athletes in their own right. And the backstory to this seat pad is that one of the guys suffered from getting numb legs while erging and also sometimes while rowing in his single. And so they developed, he looked at so many different potential solutions to why he was having this problem and how to overcome it. And what he found was that by raising up his perineum, which is the middle bit at the bottom of your pelvis, and elevating it above the sit bones, he got immense relief from these symptoms. Now, the development of the seat pad was subsequent to this. And the main difference between this seat pad and any other seat pad, bear in mind, it is absolutely fine to use any seat pad to make your own out of an old camping mat or some foam. I've got no problems with this. What this seat pad offers, which is very different from all the others, is on the underside, it has a, a hollow rectangle into which you put foam wedges. And the wedges are soft, medium and stiff so that they change the amount of support you get right in the middle of your perineum so that it elevates you to a different degree and can then obviously keep you in that higher supported position that Marlene described. Now, the seat pad is available on Amazon, and we've got it listed on the screen. It's a little short code. I'll put it in the show notes so that you can go find it easily. Uh, it isn't cheap, I will say that, but I am told by people who use it that it's extremely effective. Any more, Marlene? Or are we at the end of the show? That was so fast. How did it happen? <laughs> Masters, what can I say? It's I good. <laughs> well, I think head racing, head racing season is upon us. And, and um, back in my student years when I rode at Boston University, um, when the head of the Charles was coming, you know, when when all the trailers were coming into town, I was like, this is this is better than any holiday. This is the holiday. This is the best. Um, and uh, I haven't been down there in a long, long time, but I, I do need to get I do need to get down there. I used to always be traveling at this time of year, so it wasn't easy to always get to Boston. But um, 
it's a fantastic festival time at any regatta in any country. And, you know, we have lots of regattas coming up in the Southern Hemisphere, as well as the Northern Hemisphere goes into uh, late November as well, if you live on the West Coast. So um, lots of, I mean, this month is all racing. Like, there's, there's no downtime right now. If you're in the UK, obviously there's the Fours Head coming up in November and Faster Masters is sponsoring the Weybridge Single Skulls event, Silver Skulls event. Uh, do go on their website. It's a fantastic head race. I think they have two or three divisions in the day. It's for small boats, so singles and doubles. And part of the prize is to win a Faster Masters membership. Just to end, I'd like to tell you a little story. It's about head racing. It's about Marlene's observation about owning the river and being clear about where you want to steer. So I'm doing a head race with Hannah and we're in a double and I'm in the bow seat. And Bedford is a very pretty river in a, a market town in the east of England. And it has a bridge, a town bridge with a number of arches. And the head race takes through a slightly longer route to go through the middle arch but the middle arch is a wider span and overtaking another boat is possible under the bridge because as you know pinch points always happen in racing and it always seems that you wish to get past someone at the least convenient place and the arch that's nearest to the bank which is the more direct route it is not possible to overtake another crew and so I'm looking over my shoulder in the bow seat as we're approaching the bridge. And I'm very conscious as the bridge is the bridge. And I look over and I can see a boat in front. A few more strokes. I take another look. It's a coxed four. Okay. They might be faster than us. They might not. I take another look. They're definitely not faster than us. We're gaining on them. It's a novice women's coxed four. They're <laughs> not going as fast as us. Therefore, we are closing fast. So I take another look and I'm trying to gauge our relative speeds. And I realize quite quickly that we are going to be right on their stern as we go into the bridge and they're coming out of the bridge. And so I realize I don't have a lot of breath. I'm racing, but I need to give them a really clear instruction that we're closing on them. And because they're a novice crew, I can't assume that the coach, the cox is being told anything by the stroke. They just may not realize that that's part of the stroke's job. And I make a decision. What am I going to say? So I'm going to tell them to steer to stroke side, to port. And how am I going to say it? Very loud. And when? Just as we get our bows under the bridge, I'm going to turn and I'm going to lift my chin and I'm going to shout so that it echoes <laughs> under the bridge. <laughs> and amplifies my message and I yell just the once and the poor coxswain was terribly startled looked around and steered right away from us as she came out of the bridge and we went clear through so I, I give that to anybody who's racing under a bridge you know please copy it and if you have a rowing tale to tell, don't forget I curate a book every year called Rowing Tales, full of little anecdotes like that, of things people have done or seen or said or happened. And uh, we'd very much like to have another tale or two 
Uh, you'll need to do it this week if you get it. Send it to me, Rebecca at caro.com. And I think that's the end of Faster Masters Rowing Radio from October. So it's goodbye from me. And from me too. And by November, lots of medals will have been won. They will. We got our first medal winner, didn't we? This we did. Month. Our first champion, yes. In September, Gordon Williams won the New Zealand national title in the Masters F single skull. And he is our first Faster Master medal winner. Congratulations. Yes, he did it. We knew he would. He's got the pixie dust. Right? <laughs> he, I'll write up his story about the regatta and I will put it onto the blog for people who might be interested. Great. Till next time. Goodbye.